Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. You can tell a lot about a community by what they celebrate. You can tell a lot about a person by the things that they celebrate. For instance, I'm extremely pleased that the Golden State Warriors are losing. That tells you a bit about me. Um, it's unhealthy how much I enjoy it. Uh, but this is the place to confess our sins and be honest here at the church. You, you know, if you look at a nation, you see the, the holidays they have. It kind of tells you um, a lot about what they, what they celebrate and what they find important. And today is a celebration day in the church. Our church, the Christian church, has a calendar. And on that calendar... Um, we have holidays. Um, and the Christian calendar in particular is set up in such a way that every year we follow and walk through the life of Jesus. The gospel, the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And it starts with Advent, and it ends today at Pentecost. If you're not familiar with the church calendar, that's okay. I've not been familiar with it for most of my life. I'm still learning. I'm a novice at this too, but I'm finding that it's important because, again, the things that we celebrate shape the things that we value, the things that we look for, the things that we recognize. Um, When I was 22, I got hired to teach freshmen in high school, and I came in to teach Bible, and so I knew a little bit about the Bible, but I knew nothing about teaching, and it turns out that's its own thing. Like, people will go to school for years to learn how to teach, not just a certain subject matter. And so the school was sorely disappointed when I got in and was like, what is a lesson plan? What is, I thought I was showing up and talking. And, and so I'm having to, like, try to learn these pedagogical, you know, lessons and principles and things like that. And I can remember very clearly the first time I learned how the classroom works. So I had been taught this in preparation for the first year. The, the lesson is... You reinforce what you celebrate. You teach what you celebrate. And so, like, if if I ask a a question to a student and they say, I don't know, better than lecturing him and saying, well, why don't you figure it out by looking at the notes we just took in front of you, I should wait for a student to do that on their own and then go crazy. Be like, everyone, did you see what Mark just did? He didn't know the answer, but he found it. That's great. You celebrate it, and then all the other students start to do it. It's a, it's a good way to teach. But it, it works in all, every direction. You, you reinforce it, and, and they, they continue to do it. And so at the very beginning of the, the school year, my first year teaching, there was a, a certain period that I was never in class uh, when the period began. I was on the hall talking to someone, so I'd walk in, and the bell would have already rung. And through some sort of, we were joking and talking about something, they stood up one day and gave me a standing ovation as I walked in. I don't know if you know much about me, but I get up in front of people every week and talk, and someone once told me that there's not a pastor that's not slightly arrogant if they think they have something important enough to say every week. And so I'm a fan of attention and pomp and circumstance just for the sake of pomp and circumstance. And so um, I reinforce that behavior. <laughs> But then it kind of turned on me because they're students, and that's what they do. They find your weakness. And so very quickly, it was less of like, oh, 
how much they, they are looking forward to my lecture on uh, Exodus, and more of like, a, no, we're going we're gonna to clap, because every minute we clap is a minute less we have to do schoolwork. And I was getting like 12, 13, 14-minute standing ovations. And I learned that lesson the hard way. It's important that we celebrate the right things, I think, as a church. And so that's why I want to emphasize Pentecost and talk about the gift of the Spirit this morning. That's what Pentecost is about. It's about the gift of the Holy Spirit. In a way, it's about the birth of the church, the creation of God's people, which is made up by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And it's fascinating, just on a surface level, that this is a part of the church calendar. It is a holiday. Because we might expect the church calendar to culminate and end in the Holy Week, on, on Good Friday, with Jesus' death for us. I mean, it doesn't get much bigger than that. Or we might expect Easter Sunday. That would be the culmination of the gospel story that we walk through as a community every year. But it doesn't. The gospel doesn't end with the resurrection. The story of God and the world doesn't end with the resurrection. It continues on, and so the church celebrates the ascension of Jesus, 40 days after his resurrection. And the ascension is not um, about Jesus leaving us. It's about Jesus taking his rightful place as the Lord of the world, the inaugurated king who's now defeated death. And then 10 days after the ascension, 50 days after the resurrection, Pentecost. We remember a moment, a day in history, when a door was opened up and the world was changed forever. And what happened when that door was opened up was a gift was given. And you and I are the recipients. And that gift was God himself, the Holy Spirit. And that gift was the creation of a community, of people, of a church. When we ignore the church calendar, there are a lot of things that can go wrong for us. One of the temptations, I think, for us, um, particularly if we don't focus on Pentecost, is we fall into one or two errors usually. It's easy for Christians, in my experience, to forget about the Holy Spirit. Uh, For a long time, when I was a kind of a baby Christian, first few years of my, my, my faith, the Bible and Christianity was a God and Jesus thing. And that, yes, there's a spirit, and he showed up every now and then, but it wasn't a really big part of my everyday life. I wasn't really, didn't notice him, even when I was reading about him in the scriptures. It wasn't really until one day a college professor told me, count how many times the Holy Spirit is mentioned in Romans chapters 5 through 8, which I was like, what a great passage about God and Jesus, the Father and Jesus. And then I was like, oh no, it's about the Holy Spirit. And then I was trained and see him everywhere became a much more fully-fledged Trinitarian, appreciating the Holy Spirit. Um, it's said about Lutherans, and I think hopefully by Lutherans, but the, the phrase comes from the tradition that the Holy Spirit's the shy member of the Trinity. Um, I would suggest perhaps he's not shy, he's just not as invited all the time as, as the Father and Jesus. Um, I would suggest that the Spirit, um, the Holy Spirit, when we have a hard time interacting or recognizing, responding. But the problem is not a lack of activity on his part. It's a lack of our ability to see, to hear, to be receptive. Um, I've heard some people um, refer to the Holy Spirit as like the black sheep of the, the family of the Trinity. 
right? Like that one uncle who shows up and things get kind of weird. People start doing some weird things. People are uncomfortable. So if we ignore the celebration of the day the Holy Spirit was given to us, we, we, we put ourselves in a place where we might not fully appreciate the Holy Spirit and the role he plays in our lives. The, the other temptation is we might be tempted to individualize the gift of the Holy Spirit. We might be tempted to forget that the Holy Spirit is just as much about the creation of a community as it is about a gift to individual people. The scriptures will say that you are a temple of God, and one of the reasons you're God's temple is because God's Spirit dwells in you. And I've pointed out in previous sermons, the words that are used in those passages are plural. It's the community that's the temple of God. God's Spirit dwells in the community. And, and, and there's a big temptation for Christians to make our faith about me and Jesus. And then church doesn't really make sense. At best, we're like mutual Facebook friends. We, we like the same person, and we just kind of happen to go to the same place. But there's no real union between us, right? We're not really connected. But, but looking at Pentecost, celebrating Pentecost, shows us, it, it keeps us from, from making this error. It, it forces us to understand what God is doing and has done through the Holy Spirit involves a people. And it's a people who are connected. It's fundamentally a community thing. In fact, one of the cool things about the church, Big C Church, is that it is the one community that I'm aware of, of human beings, that cannot be severed by any division. This morning, you and I are part of a community that includes all kinds of nations. You and I are part of a community that are speaking all kinds of different languages. You and I are part of a community that that are wearing all kinds of different clothes, that have all kinds of different colors of skin. And in fact, you can correct me after serves some wrong, I think we're the only community that death doesn't sever. We're the, we're the only group of human beings that even death doesn't take away from, doesn't draw out of the community. Theologians in, in deeper moments of pondering will we'll really focus in on this, the, the idea that... So in Revelation, we get a picture of the throne room, and, and what we see are the saints of God who have passed praising him. And, and we would say something like this, when we sing worship songs, we're joining in the worship they're already participating in. Like, our community this morning is not just a group of people who gathered in Sugarland. It's a community that's gathered all over the world, and it's a community that stretches back thousands of years. And not just as a memory, not just as people who once existed, as people who are still today the church, who are still worshiping. As people who we emulate and belong to and are a part of. And so this morning I want to look at the story of Pentecost in Acts 2. We read it as our scripture reading, but it, let me invite you to turn there again with me. And I want to explore just a couple of the unique gifts that we have because of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2 is where we'll be. I'll tell you just straight up, my goal this morning is just to get you excited about the fact that God has given us the Holy Spirit. This is a gift that is so awe-inspiring, so mind-boggling, so world-transforming, that if we could just for a second really glimpse it, and grasp it, I think we could be infused with joy and hope and power in a way that would 
um, make a, a dramatic impact. Um, Acts 2, um, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, it's important to note Pentecost is a pre-Christian holiday. So it's a Jewish celebration that they had already been doing for quite a while. And it's a pilgrimage holiday. So Jerusalem would have had Jews from all over the world gathered there um, for it. Now, when they're all together in one place, um, the people being mentioned here are the 120 disciples who were left after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. If you know the story, they're waiting because Jesus has given them a promise that power would come to them, and then they'd know what to do. So they're together, waiting for something to happen, and it's the day of Pentecost, which means Jerusalem is packed. It's crowded. It's like if the Super Bowl comes to Houston. It means the authorities are nervous. Because when people get together, there are going to be riots or revolutions. It means there's a lot of confusion because there's a lot of different languages. There's a lot of different customs. They're all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. This phrase is really important, every nation under heaven. In the Gospels, we're told that um, an important part of Jesus' work is that all the nations will hear the gospel. And usually what we do is we push that off into the far future, in some sort of like end times. The gospel has to go to every nation. In fact, though, it's been pointed out to me, and I think Acts here is trying to link that promise to Pentecost. And Joel will do this, um, the passage of Joel that's quoted by Peter that we read. He says, this is that, this is the last days. At Pentecost, Acts goes out of its way to tell us every nation is there. And every nation is hearing what? The gospel. Whatever God's plan is, whatever he's doing in Christ, it's happening. It's not some far off thing. It has begun. We're in the thick of it. Now, I don't know how literal this is. I'm not sure if there's a delegate from Peru there. But I think on purpose, we're told, every nation from under heaven is there. What gets their attention is the noise. Verse 6, at the sound, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Now, that's not a compliment. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. You get the point? A lot of different people. They're all there. They're all hearing. And they're all hearing their language spoken by people who don't know their language. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? That's the question I want to ask this morning. What does this mean? When the Holy Spirit shows up, it leads people to ask the question, What does this mean? We can take, I think, from this story just a couple of quick but true principles. When the Holy Spirit shows up, people start to do things that they otherwise wouldn't be able to do. And when the Holy Spirit shows up, 
it's often confusing and bewildering and can be uncomfortable. One of the reasons I think perhaps Christians sometimes avoid the Holy Spirit is because like all other human beings, we like to be in control. And the Holy Spirit seems to get like a divine kick out of taking our control away, out of, out of entering spontaneity into our lives, into our faith, of allowing us to experience the joy that comes in the freedom of being in His control, responding to His promptings and directions. When the Holy Spirit shows up, people who are seeing and witnessing it, they respond with curiosity and amazement. They go, what does this mean? Why would a person act this way? When the Holy Spirit's present, people are going, why would a person sacrifice like that? Why would a person forgive like that? Why would a person love like that? The gospel is being embodied in front of people. And so theories come up. I love this. I promise I won't spend too much time here, but they, they come up and they say, what does this mean? Some of them start mocking. They say they're filled with new wine. And then Peter gets up. He's going to give them a defense. Peter's finding his voice. He's had a rough, rough go of it. And he addresses them. And the first thing he says is, we're not drunk. And, and, and he says, because it, it's, it's nine in the morning. I love it. He doesn't say because we don't drink. He says, Look, come back at like 8 p.m. maybe, and we'll have started. <laughs> I wonder if one of the reasons that the church is often so powerless and weak is because we look too sober. That, that what if we should be being asked, are you drunk? Not in a sinful, wicked way, right? But in a way that I can't explain this behavior. You seem intoxicated by something, moving you to do new and different things. And then he quotes Joel, the promise that one day God's Spirit will be poured out on his people, on all of his people, men and women. Still today, there's a big debate in certain parts of the church about whether women should be allowed to preach. I've never been able to read Acts 2 and, and understand how that's a question. I know these people. I'm friends with them. They're very well-intentioned. They love Jesus a lot. But just from where I stand, I see this and I go, I, yeah, the women are filled with the Spirit. The women are prophesying. Oh, yeah, the children are. But the 20-year-olds. I would much rather hear from the Holy Spirit than from person, particularly from an old man. Give me the Holy Spirit in an eight-year-old over a white guy with a degree. And on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes out on everybody. Something new is at work in the world. Something awesome is at work in the world. What does this mean? I want to answer this question this morning by looking at two echoes, I think, that we find in this story. So when I read Acts chapter 2, I hear two echoes. There are two other stories in the Bible that remind me of this story. And I think by comparing them, we can learn something about the meaning of the day of Pentecost. So the first echo is this, Mount Sinai. Often we describe Pentecost as happening on Mount Zion, 
But what happens here on Pentecost reminds me a lot of a story in the book of Exodus about a different mountain, Mount Sinai. If you're familiar with it, in Exodus 19, the people of God, led by Moses, they've come out of Egypt. They're freed from the, the slavery and bondage there. They come to a mountain. They camp at that mountain. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, speaks with God, comes back down with the commandments, eventually with the Torah, the instructions. This is, in a sense, the creation of God's people in the Old Testament. This is his telling them, this is who you should be. This is how you will be my people. And in Exodus 19, he does indeed say that. He says, you'll be a kingdom of priests. If you do what I've commanded, you'll be my treasured possession. You will be my special people sent out to bless the entire world. But if you're familiar with the story of the scriptures, the Torah by itself was not enough for God's people to be transformed into this kingdom of priests that he so desired for them to be. In fact, while Moses is on the mountain, do you remember this? They, they make the golden calf. They, they make an idol to worship. And Mount Sinai is remembered as where the law was given. And this is one of the things Pentecost is a celebration of. Even before this happened, the Jews would gather in Pentecost. They'd remember the giving of the law. But there was a dark side to Mount Sinai. And this is a lesser known part of the story. But when the, the, the Israelites who are encamped at the bottom of the mountain, when they worship this golden calf, which is at one and the same time both appalling, it, it literally just walked out of a nation through a sea. And now they're saying, verbatim, this calf we just made led us out of Egypt, parted the sea for us. That one appalling to me. I can't imagine. And then at the same time, so scary because that is us. And that is me. I can see it with my eyes. And then a minute later, I'm off track. Well, God's very upset about this. He tells Moses, I'm, I'm killing all of them. Moses says, maybe not. What if we didn't kill them? He intercedes on behalf of the Israelites. He says all of that would kind of be for a waste. You'd have to go find another enslaved people and bring them out. And they, they end up compromising. Only some will be killed. And if you read Exodus 19, what happens? I'm sorry, this is in, in 32, um, Exodus 32. Moses comes down. He asks Aaron, why did you let this happen? And then the Levites from the house of Levi, the priests, the pastors, they pick up swords and they go and they slaughter a portion of the Israelites as punishment for this idolatry. Does anybody remember how many people were killed? We're told very specifically how many people died at Mount Sinai at the hands of the priests. 3,000 people are killed. Even amongst this great gift God giving his law to his people, of creating his people. And then we read in Acts 2, and God is creating his people, this time not with the letter, but with the Spirit. This time not externally with the Torah instructions, but internally with transformation of the heart. And the people hear this sermon by 
Peter, and I've got to be honest, it's, it's kind of a long sermon. I know I go long sometimes, but this is a pretty lengthy sermon he gives here. At the end of it, the people go, what should we do to be saved? They're moved and cut to the heart. And then we're told in verse 41, if you're there with me, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about, and what's that number? 3,000. I have to think that's not an accident. At Mount Sinai, the law is given in hopes of creating a people for God. And from the beginning, there's failure and there's death. And at Mount Zion, we get a different story. It's similar, but it's different. Instead of 3,000 being taken away, 3,000 are added. God creates his people with his spirit, and now they have everything they need to be shaped into who God desires them to be. This is the fruit of the spirit. This is the work of the spirit that it would create in us a Christ-like character. In Galatians, Paul will say, we're free, but we're free because we have the Spirit. We're not free just to do whatever we would want to do. The reason we can trust ourselves with our freedom is because the Holy Spirit will be there to guide us. He'll guide us into all righteousness and truth. He'll create us into loving people, patient people, self-controlled people. What the law could not do, the Holy Spirit now does for the church. And on Pentecost, the church is created, the Spirit is given. At one point, Paul will say, the letter kills and the Spirit brings life. And this is something, at least in my own experience, that I've seen in person. I've seen people take the Bible and use it to destroy other people, to hurt other people, to take life. And then I've seen people use the same Bible to give life, to encourage, and to build up. I've read history books where the Bible has led to 3,000 or more people dying for various reasons and causes. And I've read in the history books where the Bible has led to 3,000 or more people being saved, being added to the church, creating this community. The book of Hebrews will make this comparison explicit. It will tell that Christian community, you and I have not come to Mount Sinai. We've come to Mount Zion. You and I have not been given the Torah. We've been given the Holy Spirit. In Revelation, when God is describing his saints worshiping him, they're described in that same language you find in Exodus 19. The people who worship the one who was slain and raised again, the lamb who is worthy, they are his kingdom of priests. They will reign with him forever. An echo bounces off of this Pentecost story. And God's people are created. And God's people are equipped. So often you and I don't feel equipped. We don't feel like we have what we need. I don't feel like I have what I need to be a pastor. I don't feel like our little church has what it needs to be a church. In our own lives, in your own situations, I don't, I don't have the patience I need in this moment. Pentecost would tell you, you're listening to the wrong voice. The door's been opened up, and you've been invited. 
and you have everything that you need. There's a second echo here, though, of a different story that's a little bit earlier and a little bit larger. It's the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. If you remember this story, this is before the scriptures start focusing on Israel as a nation and Abraham. And so you have the creation of the world. And then in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin. And what you get is kind of this like spiral of sin and death. It kind of exponentially increases. and Things get worse and worse and worse. And so you have the murder of a brother. Then you have the flood, violence everywhere. And then it culminates. Sin seems to reach its apex in the story in Genesis 11. And then in Genesis 12, God says, Abraham, let's fix things. He starts a redemption project. But how it reaches its culmination to sin and death is kind of odd to us. It's hard to understand sometimes. What, what seems to really set God off is they, they set out to build this tower. And they build this tower, and if you'll just trust my shortcut reading of this story, it seems to be that they want to take control of the world and take some control away from God, if not all control from God. And God's not about that. He ain't about doing that. And so he comes, and if you remember, this group of people, they were trying to totalize the world. They were trying to, to make everything the same, to be able to control everything. And God comes, and, and he reacts by saying, I'm going to make this difficult enough that you can't do this. And so he confuses them and gives them different languages. It's a lot harder to organize and try to control everything with these barriers. Notice, this does not stop human beings. From the Tower of Babel comes an empire called Babylon. And they do their best to totalize the world. And there's Egypt. And there's Rome. Human beings seeking power throughout history have always tried to do this. Try to take over. I've tried to erase differences. I've tried to make everyone sound the same, think the same, act the same. This is the philosophy behind Nazi totalitarianism. Now, at the Tower of Babel, God confuses them and gives them different languages. And we read this Pentecost story and we go, it sounds similar, but again, it's different. It's subtle, but it's different. At the Tower of Babel, God causes this sinful, empirical drive to be frustrated by giving different languages. At Pentecost, the different languages are used to unite. And notice, and, and how important is this? What God doesn't do is what we might expect. God doesn't get rid of the differences. Because that's maybe how I would write the story. If I'm like, okay, God's undoing the Tower of Babel, then we're undoing all the different languages. No, instead, the languages are able to exist still differently with unity. There are people who are rightly afraid of programs, regimes, ideas to try to unify the world. Because this often is a shorthand way of saying we will eventually get rid of anyone who doesn't conform. And there are people who are afraid of diversity and afraid of people who have other customs and other languages and other skin colors. And both of those people 
are going to be uncomfortable with the gospel. Because the gospel is heading in a direction of unity. But notice, it's a unity with diversity. It's not a unity that exists by erasing differences. It's a unity that is even enhanced by those differences. Like God himself, three in one, Father, Son, Spirit. It's unity in diversity. The church is unified, not because we all speak English, and not because one day we'll pick one language and make everyone speak it. The church is unified because we'll speak to each other. We'll translate. Someone who is deaf and has a loved one or a friend learn sign language so they can communicate with them, they experience this as a deep act of love. That you would take the initiative to communicate, to meet me where I'm at. That you would come to me. The world, according to the scriptures, is heading to unity. To one people. Or together. But the unity is found in Christ. It coexists with diversity. It gives legitimacy to the differences. It gives respect to the different opinions. This is why the church glories in. This is why I brag about the fact that there are Republicans in this room and there are Democrats in this room. And yet we're both here and we're both coming to this table. And this is why it's awesome that there are Americans in the church and there are not Americans in the church. This is why it's awesome that there are people who are of um, poor economic status, who, who have come out of, of bad situations, who maybe have been stuck in, in cycles of, of poverty. And yet at the church, you also have people who have done really well. They've started their own business and made millions of dollars. Or maybe they inherited it. And yet both of them are at this table. Together, they create, compose the people of God sent out to accomplish his purpose in the world. If the Tower of Babel functions in the narrative of Scripture as the culmination of what's gone wrong with the world, then at the day of Pentecost, the undoing of Babel, it's a signpost that God has turned the trajectory of a rebellious world that what Joel promised is happening, is true. This day is here. Salvation has come. Things are possible which you cannot imagine are possible. The Holy Spirit is God's gift of his self to us. The Holy Spirit is God saying, I want you to feel my presence, to be close to me, to be able to hear and respond to me. The Holy Spirit is how God sends his love into our hearts. Jesus describes the Spirit as the paraclete, as the comforter, the advocate. Interestingly enough, the accuser is described in the Scriptures as Hasatan, the Satan, the devil. And I think this still stands as a great way to test what spirit might be at work in a situation or in certain language. If, if it's accusing, damning, I, it might be a spirit, but I don't think it's a holy one. 
if it's comforting, advocating, building up, encouraging, bringing life. I think it's a spirit, and I think we can call it a Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. A pastor said this once, I loved it. He, he said, we could imagine the spirit almost like our lawyer, our counselor, our defense counselor, who's telling the client, you don't need to talk. I can take care of it. Because in those moments where you don't feel worthy, you don't feel worthy because you're not worthy. In the moments after you've failed and you feel down, you feel down because you've failed. But God's gift to us is not rubbing our nose in that. God's gift is, I'll advocate for you. I'm on your side. I've got this. We're told the Spirit prays for us even when we don't have the words. We're praying when we're not praying. That's literally how much God does on our behalf. God not only offers salvation, he also enacts our response to salvation that we might receive it and enjoy it. The Spirit searches our hearts. The Holy Spirit is the one who allows us to be transformed, who allows us to break patterns of violence and abuse, shame. The Holy Spirit is the one who equips us to go out into the world and make a difference. Like all God's actions, it's never just about the people he's acting to. It's always for a greater good. Sweetwater Christian Church has not been given the Holy Spirit just so we can be like, cool, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit for Sugarland, for our workplaces, for our families. Imagine this. The day of Pentecost, what was hoped for becomes what is received. What was longed for becomes what is enjoyed. And because it's been a couple thousand years, and because empires are still on the move, and because you and I still fall short and are hurt by others who fall short, how easy is it, us, is it, is it for us to forget? How easy is it for us to take for granted? How easy is it for us to not even try to listen, to be receptive? The gift of Pentecost, the gift that you and I have, is that my cynicism is not the last word. The gift of the Holy Spirit is that wherever you're stuck right now, that's not the end of that story. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the gift of being able to understand that your imagination will never be large enough to understand what God desires and will accomplish. The gift of the Holy Spirit means you'll never encounter an obstacle that God does not smirk at and say, I can't wait for you to enjoy me moving this. The gift of the Holy Spirit means God has more in plan for our church than I could dream of. That no problem I can identify, no problem we can encounter, will stop this. The gift of the Holy Spirit means your story is not over. 
Listen to that. Receive that. Your story is not over. The gift of the Holy Spirit means death's not even the final word. God has given us himself. And so, like we do with good gifts, we throw a party. We celebrate. We're going to come to the table in a moment. As we come to the table, we're offered the body and blood of Christ. And this morning, I, I, I really just want to invite you to, to, to focus in on the giftedness of this, this transaction, this, this moment. You and I have been given this present. And every morning, every day, every, every second, we have the opportunity to lean into it and to receive it and to enjoy it. And it's time to party. It's time to celebrate. Will you pray with me?